Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And blessed be his kingdom, now and forever. Amen. Let us pray together. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. I invite you to remain standing for our song of praise.
would be with you. Let us pray. Almighty and merciful God, it is only by your grace that your faithful people offer you true and laudable service. Grant that we may run without stumbling to obtain your heavenly promises. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I invite you to be seated for the reading of God's Word. A reading from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, beginning at the sixth verse. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have also been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please rise for the reading of the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at his tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Matthew to record this moment, this, his own conversion moment of becoming a disciple of Jesus. And we believe that when Matthew wrote these words, that these words not only had power in that day, but these words have power in this day because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this word for us perhaps as never before that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Every once in a while, a disciple of Jesus will find themselves back in their tax collector's booth. Or at least they'll be considering 
going back there. Every once in a while, a disciple of Jesus Christ will consider giving up this life of discipleship and going back to their old life. In my own personal experience, this is what happens when mounting personal failures at home, at work, arise. And you begin to wonder, am I a fraud? Is this actually taking in my life? You know the number one reason why people leave the church? is because soon after their conversion, soon after saying yes to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, they have some kind of moral failure. And they say, oh, I guess it didn't work for me. Discipleship didn't take for me. When we consider abandoning our discipleship, or at least diminishing our discipleship, settling for mediocrity as disciples, it's because we are failing to remember the gospel, we are prone to forget. It's like the elderly couple sitting out on their porch one day and the wife says to the husband, I want some vanilla ice cream with some chocolate sauce. And he says, I'll get it. And she says, write it down or you'll forget. And he says, I'm not going to write it down. I'm not going to forget. He goes inside and a good 20 minutes later, he comes out and hands her a plate full of scrambled eggs and toast. And she says, I told you to write it down. You forgot the bacon. (laughs) See, we're all prone to forget, but when we forget the gospel, when we forget the good news of God and Jesus Christ about our discipleship, we will be tempted as failures mount to consider going back to our tax collector's booths. See, this story of Matthew, the tax collector and his conversion, his call to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, he writes it down for us so that we will see and remember the gospel about our discipleship. It's just one verse. If you turn there with me, it's Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. One verse that contains the gospel, the good news about our discipleship. And what we find as we unpack Matthew's discipleship conversion story is here's the gospel. That failures become followers because of the final word of the rabbi. Failures, utter failures, become followers, disciples, only based upon that final word and command of the rabbi. You see, first we need to recognize that the gospel begins with failure. As Friedrich Buechner says, the gospel is always bad news before it's good news. The news is that man is a sinner, that he is evil in the imagination of his heart, so that when he looks at himself in a mirror, all in a lather, he sees at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob. And see, Matthew understands he's a failure. He, he knows it. It's right in his own name. You see, Matthew's mother gave him the name Matayahu, Matthew, which means gift of Yahweh. And do you know what this gift of Yahweh did with his life? He became a tax collector. He became the most hated of Jewish citizens. You see, the tax collectors, 
They were the traitors in Jesus' day. We're told that Matthew was sitting in his tax booth. These were the traitors who were cooperating with the pagan oppressors that had overrun Israel. They were enabling this pagan Caesar to get his taxes off the backs of their fellow Jews. And they would do so adding all kinds of extra taxes on top that they could benefit and make themselves wealthy by with a Roman soldier, a pagan soldier enforcing that the tax be collected. Tax collectors were so loathed, in fact, the Jewish law considered them to be unworthy, unable to enter even into worship. They couldn't come to synagogue. And they were categorized along with murderers, robbers, and unclean animals. That's what a tax collector is. And Matthew knew, therefore, that he was an utter failure. He knew it every day, even just thinking of his name. I am such a failure. What does my mother think of me? But see, Matthew's not alone. We all know what it is to be failures. We all know what it is to be imperfect, to be uneven performers. Scripture calls it sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you know, I used to, when I was a newer Christian, thought I had to convince people about their sin when I was talking to a non-believer in an, a, in an evangelistic moment in a Starbucks or on a plane somewhere. I felt like when they would throw out the, well, you know, I don't need religion, I'm a good person defense, I was like, man, I gotta try and argue with them. But over time, I realized that most people don't really need to be argued with about the fact that they're a sinner, the fact that they're a failure, the fact that they're broken, especially when we consider the definition of sin. It's pretty broad scripturally. Everything from missing the mark or a somewhat intentional choice of a moral failure or even something malignant and twisted deep within inside us, all of it's sin. And what I came to realize over the years has been that most human beings are actually aware, at least somewhere deep down, that they are sinners. And so now when someone throws out the I'm a good person line, my response is, first of all, to smile, because it's always important to make someone feel good before you completely shatter their worldview. And then I'll simply say, really? And then wait. And the person who speaks next loses because they start to look at their feet and they, and they start to make justifications and qualifications. Well, you know, I'm not saying I'm, I'm perfect and you know, I'm, I'm no Mother Teresa, but you know, I, I'm better than some and I, I consider myself, well, and by the end of it, they completely undo their own argument. They recognize I'm not a good person because most of us, if we're honest, can identify a lot more closer with David's words in Psalm 51 verse three, that my transgressions are always before me and my sin is always in front of my eyes. We know that we are failures. But here's the gospel that Matthew wants us to realize. He knows he's a failure, but the gospel, the good news in Jesus is that failures can become followers. Failures can follow Jesus. See, Jesus says that to Matthew. He says, follow me. And that's very clear-coded discipleship language in the first century. To follow means to follow a rabbi, to become an apprentice, a student, a learner. 
to learn to live that rabbi's life. What Jesus is effectively saying when he says those words, follow me, whether it's to Matthew here or to Peter, James, and John, and Andrew in their fishing boats, in each case, he's saying, come, learn my life. Learn to live my way in this world and thereby help me change the world. That's what it means to be a disciple. And see, it's unthinkable for us that Matthew, the tax collector, would be invited, called, even commanded, we'll argue in a moment, to follow a a rabbi. It, It just makes no sense at multiple levels. Yes, he's a great sinner, but also, frankly, he's too old. Let me explain what I mean. In the Jewish school system, in the first century, it worked like this. When you were six years old, and it was boys we're speaking of here, sorry ladies, it is the first century. Um, Thanks be to God, we just celebrated 100 years of the women getting the vote in this country. So we've, we've moved a long way, right? But for now, first century, the boys alone, at age six, go off to what's called Beit Sefer. Okay, this is called the house of the book. And between age six and age 12, they're going to learn the book. They're going to learn the Torah. They're going to memorize the first five books of the Bible. If you've ever tried to memorize a couple passages of scripture and struggled, imagine being six years old and learning to memorize the Torah. Like imagine numbers in Deuteronomy or Leviticus, even worse, right? They memorized that for six years. Now, when they turned 13, they finished Beit Sefer, the house of the book, and they all would graduate because they were becoming the age of majority at age 13, right? That's why today you have bar mitzvahs and bet mitzvahs at 13 because that's the age of majority. They would go off and learn the trade from their father, right? They're done school, I know there's people who are 13 and older in the room thinking, man, I'd love to have school done at 13, but they go and they learn the career from their father, right? But the best of the best, the 1% of the 1%, the absolute elite students from Beit Sefer would be asked to stick around for a couple more years. And they would enter a, a more advanced level of education called Beit Midrash, which is the house of interpretation. Now that they've memorized the Torah, now they're going to learn how to interpret it. They're going to study it. And so between age 13 and age 15, these sort of elite students would then study the Torah. But when they turned 16, they too would be sent packing. All right, now you're a little more educated than the average Jew, but go learn your father's profession. But the very best of the very best of the very best, the 1% of the 1% of the 1%, top students would then be invited by a rabbi to follow him and enter into what's called the Beit Talmud, the house of the disciple, the house of discipleship. Now, having memorized Torah, having learned how to interpret it, they were gonna learn how to live it. They were gonna follow a rabbi and try to live his life exactly the way he lived the Torah under God. That very elite group would then follow for 10 plus years this rabbi to learn to be just like him. Now, when Jesus walks by Matthew the tax collector's booth, here in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 9, and says, follow me, be my disciple, this is unthinkable. Not just because he's a great sinner, but follow. Matthew is living in a profession now. 
Yes, it's a pretty awful profession, but the point is he's got a profession. Clearly, Matthew didn't pass the test. Matthew was not in the elite group. He was not the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. He long ago went out in the world and was working. He was not the best and the brightest. He was not able, therefore, to have the competency to truly enter into this discipleship school. How could this rabbi trust that this idiot disciple who was not smart enough to get into the upper levels of education could ever learn his own way? How could this failure imagine that they could become a follower, a disciple? And it's only because the rabbi says so. This rabbi says, come. This rabbi comes to this one who's not the elite, who's not the best, who's not the most moral, and says, be my disciple. See, the gospel, here's where it really lands, ultimately, is not only that failures can become followers, but the question is how? And the answer is this, failures become followers by the final word of the rabbi, by the final word of our rabbi, because he has called. That and that alone is why we can be his disciples. Here's what I mean. You see it in the text, right? We're told, look at the order, that Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting in his tax booth. Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. There's no other explanation. There's no entry into the psychological state of Matthew and why he would weigh all these things. No, all scripture shows us and all scripture needs to tell us is that Jesus uttered the command and Matthew followed. And yes, let's be clear, it's a command. This is not a suggestion. It's not like a party invitation. Hey, if you've got nothing else to do, why don't you come be my disciples? No, this is a command, follow me. It's an imperative and it's coming off the lips of God himself. The same lips that spoke the words, let there be light at the beginning of creation and behold, there was light now speaks over this failure and says, follow me. And he can do nothing but follow him. This is how a failure can become a follower because the rabbi's word about this is final and absolute and complete and authoritative. It's like the centurion in the story last week when his servant or son is suffering who says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. That's the authority of Jesus' word. He says it and it must therefore take place. Just like the words of Isaiah chapter 55. I love it. It's, it's such a picture of the power of God's word. The performative, effective power of God's word. It says this, and it's a great metaphor. It says, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return until they water the earth, providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so goes forth my word. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. Jesus says to this failure, follow me. And that's the final word on it. He can do nothing but follow. And Matthew, of course, 
walking with Jesus over the next few years, all the way to Jerusalem, to Calvary and beyond, knows the whole story. And so when he writes his his narrative down, when he writes in this one verse, this little conversion story, he puts a little hint in to indicate for us just how final this moment of discipleship was, just how complete it was. Because he uses a very special word after Jesus says, follow me. Matthew says, and he, he's speaking about himself, he, I, rose and followed him. And that word rose is not a throwaway word. It's the same word used for resurrection. In that moment, because of his definitive authoritative calling, in that moment, that finality in his life, that final word spoken, has affected for him ultimately the story of his own resurrection. Here's what I mean by it. You see, Jesus, when he called Matthew, Matthew would finally understand one day that when Jesus called him, this failure to be a follower, he knew exactly what it would take to take this failure and make him a follower. He knew just how much work was to be done. Matthew would find out that Jesus was fully aware that there was not just tinkering that needed to happen in Matthew's life to make him a follower, that there was a full-blown, born-again reality that would have to take place. Jesus would have to take this dead, broken sinner have him put to death in his sin and then brought alive again. He would have to die and rise again in order to actually live into this new life. Jesus knew that this call, therefore, would require that someone bear all of Matthew's failures. Matthew can't bear it. And so Jesus, when he called him in that moment, knew everything about you as a failure is going to fall on me as I come to Calvary. And when I bear that, your punishment for your failures and your sins. As I die the death, you should have died. And then I'm raised to life again. That will now become a new reality for you. You are born again into a new life, Matthew. And I have borne all the consequences of that new birth. Jesus' death and resurrection, therefore, for each disciple that he calls, becomes the final word on our discipleship. It becomes the final word about our failures. When Jesus hangs on the cross, he is speaking that final word, not just about our discipleship, but about our very core selves. When he says about our sin, dying on the cross, John 19, verse 30, it is finished. And he breathed his last and gave up his spirit. And that is Jesus' final word about you and about me and every disciple that he calls. Do you hear it? Our status as disciples is not based on our work, on how well we're doing that particular week. Our status as disciples is based exclusively on his final word. He called us and he has borne all the penalty of our failures and that is what we are by his declaration. That is what grace is and to believe in it is what faith is. When I was in college, my freshman year of college, I stopped going to church it's a bit of an encouragement for some parents out there who might be struggling with that with their kids. I just, I stopped. I was, I was a new believer. I've been, I've been a believer for a little over a year and I went to college 
you know, all the freedom and the rest. And I just, I just stopped going to church. It wasn't like I stopped being a Christian. I, I believed, I felt really guilty about it. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't enough to bring me back to church, but I didn't really read my Bible. I didn't pray much, you know, except for maybe in front of a few exams. But I just, I just stopped really living into any kind of discipleship life. And at the end of my second semester, just as I was about to head back home, I got a call from my home church pastor. I thought, oh no, here it goes. He's found out somehow. Like they must have like super attendance records like out in the cloud before the cloud even exists. He knows that I'm not going to church. But he said, I'm calling with good news. He said, the church has decided that we want to sponsor you and send you and pay for you to go to a church conference, a leadership conference in Chicago in the summer. And my heart sank and I just had to be honest. I said, I said, Greg, I, I got to admit, I, I haven't been going to church. Like, I, I haven't been praying or reading my Bible. Like I've been a really awful disciple. I, I don't even know where I stand with the Lord right now. And there was a big long pause. And then Greg said the words I'll never forget. He said, Paul, he said, but the fact is you are a disciple of Jesus because he has called you and made you a disciple as bad a disciple as you may be lately you can't change what you are and then he said this he said perhaps the best thing in the world for you right now is in fact to go to this church leadership conference and so I did and as I was there I heard the gospel again afresh and as I was there, I repented afresh. And as I was there, I, I recommitted my life and said yes to following Jesus afresh. And it was at that conference, just as I was getting ready for the second year of college, where for the first time I began to hear that whisper that maybe I was called to preach. Paul says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. And this is true of you and of me and of Matthew and of everyone who hears that performative commanding call, that final word of Jesus, follow me. Our status is not, our status as disciples is not based on our works, but only on his final word. Every now and then a disciple of Jesus will end up back in their tax collector's booth, or at least they'll think about going back there. In our failures, we're tempted to believe that maybe it's time to give it all up. And this happens because we forget the gospel. So let us remember the gospel. Perhaps today you are in this room sitting in the midst of a sense of absolute failure as a disciple. Or maybe you're sitting in this room fearful that 
A big failure could be just around the corner. Hear the good news. Hear what Matthew desires us to always remember about the gospel. That failures become followers because of our rabbi's final word about us. That is what's real. That is what lasts. That is what draws us back to our life of discipleship every time we wander away. And that is ultimately what will change the world as disciples like you and me, full of our frailty and our faults and our failures, are again and again drawn back to that life of following Jesus, learning to live like him in a world that desperately needs to see a church that looks like Jesus. It's not because of what you and I have done. It's because what he has spoken over us. That word over us is final. That is the gospel. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to rise as we confess what we believe about the gospel in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please kneel as you are able. Let us pray for the church and for the world, saying, hear our prayer. For the peace of the whole world, 
and for the well-being and unity of the people of God. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For Foley, our Archbishop, Todd, our Bishop, Paul, our Rector and Dean, and for all the clergy and people of our diocese and congregation, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For all who proclaim the gospel at home and abroad, remembering especially our missionary partners in Rwanda, Archbishop Laurenth, his clergy, congregations, and preschools. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For our brothers and sisters in Christ who were persecuted for their faith, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For our nation, for those in authority, and for all in public service, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For all those who are in trouble, sorrow, need, sickness, or any other adversity, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For all those who have departed this life in the certain hope of the resurrection, in thanksgiving, let us pray. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Let us humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who, with sincere, who sincerely repent and with true faith turn unto him, have mercy upon you, pardon, and deliver you from all your sins. Confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I invite you to rise. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Let's share that peace with one another directly in our own families and indirectly with others. I invite you to be seated for a few short announcements. Good morning. My name is Father John Beatty. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to Christ Church this morning. If you are new to us or relatively new to us, we'd love to have a chance to meet you. Stop by our newcomer desk in the lobby uh, after service or say hello to one of our clergy members and we can tell you a little bit more about Christ Church and learn a little more about you. I have two announcements that I want to share with you this morning and both of them are backpack related. Um, the first is uh, that last week we concluded our annual Kids in Need backpack drive. 
Uh, as you know, as a church, each year we strive towards a goal of providing 500 backpacks and school supplies for local needy families. And I am so thrilled to tell you that this year we not only met that goal, but we exceeded it. So thank you for your generosity. Next Sunday is our annual back-to-school blessing. I would like to invite all students, um, teachers, administrators to join us in worship next Sunday morning. If you're a student, bring your backpack, and we would like to say a blessing for you before this school year begins. Uh, we will actually do that blessing in the pews in the same way that we do our birthday and anniversary blessings each week. So please come, and students, bring your backpacks. And now let's do our birthday blessing. If it's your birthday today or in the coming week, I'd invite you to stand now so your church family can say a prayer for you. Please stand if it's your birthday. No birthday? Oh, here we have a birthday. All right, let's join together at the collect on the bottom of page 7. Watch over your children, O Lord, as their days increase. Bless and guide them wherever they may be. Strengthen them when they stand. Comfort them when discouraged or sorrowful. Raise them up if they fall. And in their hearts, may your peace, which passes understanding, abide all the days of their lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Happy birthday. You may be seated. And if you are celebrating an anniversary today or in the coming week, wedding anniversary, we'd invite you to stand now. Anyone? Ah. Turn towards each other, hold hands, we'll say a prayer for you. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, bless, preserve, and keep you. Lord, mercifully with this favor, look upon you and fill you with all spiritual benediction and grace that you may faithfully live together in this life and in the age to come have life everlasting. Amen. You may kiss your bride. Congratulations. Now, if you haven't uh, joined us for communion in the past couple of months, there are a few things have changed. We are following our safety guidelines. As always, as you come forward, you can leave your offering in one of the baskets in the front of the aisles. And please receive the bread with your hands flat and receive the cup of wine from one of the stations from the bottom of the cup. It will be handed to you from the top of the cup. Also, if you're uncertain about receiving communion, we'd still like you to come forward because we'd love to say a prayer blessing for you from one of our clergy. Now, as we prepare our table and we prepare our hearts for communion, I'd invite you to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a perfect offering and sacrifice to God. Please stand for our preparatory hymn.
Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right, our duty and our joy, always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who on the first day of the week overcame death and the grave, and by his glorious resurrection opened to us the way of everlasting life. Therefore we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent your only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world for our salvation. By the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, he became flesh and dwelt among us. In obedience to your will, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all, that by his suffering and death we might be saved. By his resurrection he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. As our great high priest, he ascended to your right hand in glory, that we might come with confidence before the throne of grace. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and we offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your word and Holy Spirit to be for your people, the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Sanctify us also that we may worthily receive this holy sacrament and be made one body with him, that he may dwell in us and we in him. 
in the fullness of time, put all things in subjection under your Christ, and bring us with all your saints into the joy of your heavenly kingdom, where we shall see our Lord face to face. All this we ask through your Son, Jesus Christ, by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. All honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. And now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Alleluia! Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed once for all upon the cross. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Come, beloved, all is ready.
We pray together our post-communion prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. And now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. To him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding guard your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Let us go out singing together. I sing the almighty power of God. Go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God.